Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crimecast, a briefing featuring the latest guidance, analysis, and voices from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Sabota Kendall, VP of Product Development with ACFCS, and this podcast is part of a series examining modern slavery from many angles in collaboration with Thomson Reuters. In this edition, we're taking on the world of fashion, not the glamour and the hype that's often associated with the industry, but instead its much darker underbelly, where labor trafficking and slavery can and often do lurk in the supply chains of major global brands. The good news is that fashion brands are under growing pressure to address exploitation and slavery among their suppliers. Some of the industry are going even further to build brands that put the issue of modern slavery front and center. Today, we speak with one company that's doing exactly that. I'm very pleased to introduce the host of today's Crimecast, and that is Gina Jerva, an attorney and manager of thought leadership for enterprise content at the Thomson Reuters Legal Executive Institute, who, in conversation with Brad Jeffrey, the founder and CEO of CauseGear, will be guiding us through this topic today. Gina, it's a pleasure having you on. Thank you for being here. Great. Thank you so much, Brian, and thank you to ACFCS um, for hosting this podcast. Um, and thank you to everyone for joining us today. This is part three of a series that we at Thomson Reuters have devoted to the eradication of human slavery. Um, in part one of the series, that, which we have linked here, I talked with special guest Charlotte Davis, who is a manager of anti-slavery programs at the Thomson Reuters Foundation. And in that webinar, we really talked about how financial institutions can better position themselves to recognize indicators of human slavery uh, globally. In part two, you can also listen to my conversation if you want to binge on, on some of this content. You can listen to my conversation with Carolyn DeMar, who is the National Hotlines Director from the Polaris Project's National Human Trafficking Hotline based in Washington, D.C. Um, on that podcast, we focused on sex trafficking in the United States and the illicit massage business. And for your convenience, we've included the links to both Parts 1 and Parts 2 here, but you could listen to these as standalone, so um, feel free to do that. But as uh, Brian mentioned, today we're talking about labor trafficking in the garment industry and really trying to look at this as, um, as a global problem and then look at how one, um, one company has decided to, to change uh, the global supply chain and change the way that they do business. So Brad Jeffrey, who is the founder and CEO of Cause Gear, is with us today, and I'll be speaking with him. Cause Gear is a Chicago-based fashion accessory company, and it really prides itself on offering clothing that is manufactured by persons who are free from slavery. Um, and Brad has 30-plus years' experience in business development and in this field and is on a mission to transform the lives of over 1 million victims of human trafficking who are really trapped in this unfathomable poverty and injustice, and, and he helps them um, by the, to become more self-sustaining through paying them a living wage. So we're going to hear more about that. Um, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. What a privilege to be here. Thank you. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, we mentioned you know Cause Gear and and their and their mission or your mission. Um, but let's first set the stage for the labor trafficking problem. Um, as, as Brian mentioned, there's over 40 million people that are in some form of modern human slavery today um, in 2019. And, and that's all across the world. That's the United States, 
that's in the EMEA region, in APAC, just everywhere that you can think of, there is some form of slavery. Uh, the garment industry specifically is, um, or is particularly susceptible to that. Can you give us an overview of labor trafficking and the problem, just as you understand it in the research you've done? Yeah, you bet. Um, my wife is also the co-founder with me, and, and the reason that we started this is the more we learn about this this monumental problem that's really hard to fathom, right? When you talk to people and you say this number, 40 million, most people have never heard that, and they just can't believe it. Um, but to give it some context and to get some specifics around it, so there's 40 million today, right? But 40% of that number, about 18 million, is in one country alone, and that's India. So India is a population of about 1.3 billion people, roughly the same size as China. And you have this situation, and a lot of people say, well, why is India 40%? Uh, the next country down is about a third of that. I believe it's China. Um, we're going to have a resource which has all the details you can look into later. But what's going on right now in the world is that poverty is driving this problem. Um, and India has probably the most people in poverty of, of any country. When you look at the poverty numbers and you look at um, just uh, like, well, typical poverty and, and inequality, most of the time the data centers on uh, per capita income or per, per a percentage of poverty. And the World Bank has been doing that for a while. And then when you look at the World Bank numbers, it's very deceiving because as a percentage, poverty has gone down dramatically. But, it, but the bottom the bottom portion of poverty, about 750 um, million to a billion people, has really been pretty stagnant for about 30 years. And out of that number, there's about two to 300 million people in, in India alone that are in extreme poverty. And they're there for a variety of reasons, but a lot of it is uh, socially, socially driven. Um, India is, 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 a, is a caste system country uh, built on the tradition of, of people that are... Um, are, are, many people are outcasts, or the lowest caste is called the Dalits. And the Dalit people have bought into, I would say, the lie that their lot in life is to live an impoverished life and until maybe their next life in reincarnation. And so they, they live on this um, uh, $2 a day scenario. And by the way, the World Bank defines poverty today as living on $1.90 a day. So they're living on this scenario, and they can't see a way out. So what happens is they may be working in a legal factory. They may be making the legal wage, but they can't live on that. The legal wage, the average minimum wage in South Asia, is about $2 a day. So they can't live on that. So they believe the lie of a stranger who says, I've got a better situation for you or your family, only to be tricked or sold into slavery, and they can't get out. So that's the very typical situation. In the fashion industry, where one in six people work in the world, is one of the largest drivers of this problem. You know, most of us, when we, when we buy our clothes um, off the rack or, you know, we make a purchase online, we're not really putting a significant amount of time into thinking about how our clothes are made or created, right? We're just, we, we see a pair of jeans we like, we see a, a shirt or a blouse right. we like, and, and we purchase it. 
Um, how did you first learn about labor trafficking in the clothing industry? Like what, what, um, what led you to, to better understand this problem? I became fascinated by the topic just kind of casually at first. Um, went to some presentations, read some books. But then it wasn't until I traveled and saw firsthand. And anybody who's traveled into a majority world country or a third world country, however you want to say it, and you're in the depths of that poverty, you can't help but say, I want to do something about it. So what happened for me personally is I traveled to um, different countries in Africa and eventually India, and I was in the slum of Nairobi called Kabera. Kabera is a slum of about half a million people in the size of one square mile, if you can imagine, with open sewers and very little utilities or anything. It's a really dark place. So I'm in the slum of Kabera, and I'm meeting with this group of women who are making jewelry, from bones from the garbage, and they were just surviving, but they said, this is actually good money. We're making $3 a day, and most people make a dollar a day in Cabrera. And they felt really fortunate. And I said, okay, well, what do you really need? Is $3 enough? And they admitted, no, actually about $8 a day would be a game changer for them. So I, I became very interested in this topic of well, $8 a day is nothing, and these are hardworking women. What if we create jobs for women like this in the poorest regions of the world making high-quality fashion? And then the more I learned about slavery and that slavery was really a symptom of poverty like this, I, I uh, couldn't let it go. Um, and then I saw another trend that gave me hope, and that was the millennial generation was very passionate about changing their buying behavior or having a new buying behavior when it came to fashion. They were very interested in ethical purchasing, purchasing that was connected to a life, connected to social change. So I saw this trend, this was about 10 years ago, and, I, and it, it helped me justify a business model because in my mind, I'm like, how the heck are we going to compete with big brands, right? Well, the millennials gave me that confidence because they were willing to switch brands based on social impact. So the combination of all that, and then I went to India eventually and saw and learned about what's going on there. And um, if anybody's experienced, I think if anybody experienced what I experienced, they would probably want to do the same thing. Absolutely. And, and being, we tend to be disconnected, I think, in, in that global supply chain from the origins of where our clothing comes from or, right. or oftentimes, you know, even where our food comes from, we're disconnected from that. Um, I think what you're saying about the millennial generation, um, be, getting better at that, um, you know, maybe they're more, the term woke is used quite a bit, uh, you know, understanding right. um, the source of where their products and their food is coming from might change people's minds. And it sounds like, it sounds like it did with you. So, Brad, when we talk about India's fashion industry, where are we specifically specifically seeing um, labor trafficking or human slavery? Because, you know, when, when a garment is produced or an item is produced, um, you know, it's that starts with the raw products in the field, and then we end up with a finished product that, that we see in our stores, like a shirt or a pair of jeans. So can you talk about where we see that along the line of production? Yes, you bet. And um, I'm going to touch on two particular raw materials, and then let's just follow it through to the production. So we're look, we use a lot of leather and, and cotton canvas. So when you're looking at in those two areas, um, from the cotton-growing um, 
field, to the workers in the fields, you are you you have the potential of slavery versus just a really crummy, low-paying job, and you have really bad working conditions. Like um, if you're use, if you're using chemicals and you're not doing organic farming, that you have really bad health situations and all that. You're not protected. Um, and the same goes in the leather industry. When you're tanning leather, you could be exposed to chromium and other bad things without protection. Um, so there's a major health issues. So there's the health side, and then there's just the, the, the work environment. And then if you're a slave or if you're just in a really crummy volunteer, you know, on your own accord job. So anywhere along that supply chain, either you're a cotton grower, a cotton canvas weaver, um, or a leather tannery to um, the actual making of bags and, and fashion products, Anywhere along there, you could be um, forced into slavery to do those jobs or just have a really bad $2 a day uh, wage job working 12 hours a day. Um, so it could be in any one of those areas. And you really don't know as the consumer, and, and also many of the major brands don't know um, legitimately if their products are supporting slave labor, labor versus really crummy legal job labor because in that supply chain there are third-party brokers who who basically outsource a lot of the manufacturing and that's when the problem starts because they will look for the lowest cost producer um, of the raw materials or the actual finished product and in that scenario you will have shadow illegal factories who are tapping into um, all types of people, um, uh, women, children, you name it, that um, could be enslaved in those jobs. And, and I think that's that's an important point. I mean, you bring up several important points there, but w specifically calling out that in the fashion industry in India, part of it is is forced is forced labor trafficking. The other piece of it is what you said that um, individuals are essentially forced into these jobs um, where they're getting paid really poor wages. Um, you said $2 a day. Some people get paid $1.90 a day. Um, and so there's the two parts. There's the forced trafficking, and then there's people that voluntarily take the jobs. But it's almost not voluntary because there are no other opportunities available. Um, so I think it's important to keep That's that right. in mind here. And, and then what, what, what also right. you said is that a lot of these um, larger um, fashion companies that are um, deriving their products um, on the global supply chain from India may not be aware of what's happening on the ground in India because there's a third-party intermediary that really um, uh, that really shields the, um, the the clothing supplier or the clothing um, producer from what's happening on the ground in India. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yep. That's what's going on. Is there a group of persons uh, that you've seen that are more susceptible to the actual labor trafficking piece, the forced slavery? Yes, there is. And I just want to preface this. This is a pretty dark, um, hard to imagine situation. But to answer the question accurately, I have to tell you, so it's typically very young girls. Um, and what's going on in India, north, northern India particularly, is that girls that are leaving um, Nepal 
to come into India because Nepal has really a really bad economic situation on their own. So young girls are coming over the border of Nepal to India looking for a better life. And it's at that intersection that the majority of trafficking starts to occur. And the reason is, is the Nepalese girls have a look that is more marketable, as sick as that sounds. Um, so these young girls, maybe 14, 15, 16, and, and, they're, and they haven't been damaged, so to speak, okay? They are new, they're young, they're impressionable. So these young girls are crossing the border into India, and they're promised a great job by someone on the other side, only to be now forced into a brothel or forced into a massage parlor or, or in a fashion factory. Um, a lot, and, and so, or, or they, they go to a fashion factory because maybe they, maybe they know about prostitution and they don't want to, they don't want to do that. And they're told that, well, you can come to this factory and we'll pay you really well. So they avoid that and they go into the fashion factory, but now they can't get out. Um, they, they, maybe they voluntarily thought and it looked like a legit job. Um, but what happens is they create these, these factories have housing and food benefits. So what, what, what the typical scenario is you go and you think you're getting a legit job. You have a place to stay, you're getting food, et cetera. But then the owner of the factory says, well, to pay for your food and your room and board, um, you still owe us money, okay? So all your wages have gone to that, so you can't leave because you have a debt now to pay. And wow. if they say, well, no, um, you know what? I made a mistake. I, I don't want to be here. They say, sorry, you can't leave. And if you try to leave, they hurt you really bad. Now you are stuck. Um, that's what's going on. And this is, then, wow. and, but the young girls are the, I would say if you had to pick a, a group, it would be the young Na- Nepal, Nepalese girls. And that's, I mean, you're right what you said. That it is a really, it's a really dark thing to think about. Um, I know there's, there's a, some statistics out there from the International Labor Organization um, that reported that in New Delhi alone, there are reported 100,000 children who work for more than 14 hours a day in, a, in an illegal sweatshop. Um, and again, in New Delhi alone. Yeah. From what you've yeah. seen in India, what does a typical work day look like for a person who's who's forced into slavery? Is it is it a fourteen hour work day or something along those lines? If they're in, in an illegal sweatshop, yeah, they um, they uh, are sitting in a very dark room on the floor and they are having to do a repetitive task over and over and over again. Um, they get very little nutrition or good food um, and then they have to sleep in a dark room with many other people um, they uh, it's just dark depressing and they work they do work 14 hour days um, wow. and they um, yeah and they're they're just in this place that's a prison for them um, but then you know even the even the non enslaved people don't have a whole lot better they get to come and go but their work days are pretty similar. And who, not to call out any one specific brand, but, you know, who is benefiting the most from, and, and, and I will use the word exploitive practice because this is clearly an exploitive practice. Like, who's benefiting from this and, and why? I mean, it's, it's clearly keeping labor costs down, but, you know, what is it that right. 
what what does right. this mean? Um, who benefits? Well, um, India and Bangladesh, for example, they're both very aggressively pursuing to be the largest producer of fashion in the world, second to China right now. And they'll do whatever it takes to bring business into their country. So what's happening is major brands, international brands, are going to South Asia and they're going to these very slick, very well-packaged um, garment fashion companies that are going to make their product for them. And they make they strike these big deals, right? That they're gonna this company is gonna make them whatever, a hundred thousand T shirts and, and other things. And they, they agree to all these standards. In fact they'll agree that they're using fair labor practices, they may even say fair trade, they'll say all kinds of things. But what happens is they are, are subcontracting this out to, to multiple subcontractors who could be um, legitimate companies, but most of them are not, and they're using sweatshop labor. The people who benefit from this are um, basically all the all the major companies. The company, the, the the major national company that is having you know the product made for them. They're getting you know they're getting a T-shirt for you know fifty cents to a dollar, and they're selling it for twelve to twenty. You know. They're benefiting a lot. There's a lot of margin. And when you think about think about the fashion industry, when you go shopping, how many times you've walked in the store and they say up to 70% off, right? And you're like, how the heck can they do that? Well, there's 70% margin they normally get. So now they're just breaking even on some old stock. They've already made tons of money. So the big brands are making lots of money. And then the manufacturing companies are making pretty good share too. The people that are, of course, not benefiting is the actual worker on the line. They're being exploited. Wow. It's just, it sounds like a huge markup there. And that's, and, and that's, as you said, that those are who, those are the people that are the individuals, the companies that are benefiting um, from these practices. But what about, you know, there, there is an idea out there and I've heard this, and this is really about just the business model in general in the fashion industry, that if you pay workers more, then suddenly the price for the consumer is going to rise drastically. And all of us uh, who are purchasing these T-shirts and, and, and these uh, other items, these fashion accessories that are being made, we're all going to have to pay more. Is that, in fact, yeah. true from what you've seen? No, it's not. And there's a statistic out there that if you increase, um, if you triple the labor cost of making a t-shirt it'll only add three cents to the price of the t-shirt so wow. unless so you want to call three, three cents, cents. Uh, significant yeah <laughs> i mean we don't even value pennies anymore right we let pennies fall on the ground we don't pick them up so yeah wow. yeah so it, it's a fallacy it's a fallacy and no one I mean, why would the manufacturing or the big brands even want to talk about this? You have to remember, you know, it's not in their best interest to say, hey, by the way, I mean, if we tripled our wages, it wouldn't really cost you anymore. I mean, they're not going to talk about it. Well, let's talk about Cause Gear, though. And, you know, you have a line called Made by Free Women. Um, so what steps do you take to ensure that your supply chain is, is free from human trafficking, but also that you are paying a living wage to your workers? So when um, when we built the business after the situation we saw, you know, in Cabrera Slum and the business model was birthed, um, we sent we set our sights on that we would 
make sure that the people making our product would make up to $8 a day or, or five times what they normally would make. So 5X is our, is our target wage number, which is the livable wage. So that's what we're all about. And so the, what we've been able to do and what we have found is that we can actually pay people um, a 5X wage and still deliver a competitive product to the consumer. And how do we do that? Well, we use, we use best practices. We have a very efficient supply chain. We don't have a corrupt supply chain. We work very closely with our manufacturing partners and our raw material suppliers. Um, my wife and I go over to India regularly, and we're small at this point, so we have a very tight personal relationship with, with every, everybody in the, in the chain. Um, so we know, we know firsthand, we've vetted out everybody. These are, this is like family to us. Um, so we're, we have that, that opportunity right now to build it from the ground up. Um, though we're small and working with very small um, little um, teams, um, what we're learning is that this is very scalable. And so we're really excited about it. And we can take this to, large, to, to a very large level. And we can still deliver value to the customer. And I think that, you know, when we talk about being scalable, I think that that is key. But it's not impossible for larger companies, larger clothing companies to, to do this, right? Well, it, just, it would just take a more concerted Correct. effort on their part. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's like any industry. You know, any established, mature industry really doesn't change unless they have to, right? I mean, right. You, can look at, you look at all kinds of case studies of disruptor, you know, industries, from razor blades to coffee to microbreweries, you know, a lot of disruption out there. And the only reason major brands changed or acquired, you know, new startups is because they had to. And it's the same thing here. That's such a good point. Uh, what, what recommendations would you make to any companies who are really, really starting to pay attention to this or really emphasizing curbing, you know, human trafficking in their own supply chain, you know, forced labor, um, especially of children. Do you have any recommendations that you can make to um, clothing companies about how to do this? Yeah, I would say, you know, really uh, do your due diligence. Invest the time to really get to know your supply chain and maybe start something off on the side because they're so big. I mean, big companies, you have to be careful when you change. You, you need to do kind of a beta test, something off on the side, a new product development, a new model, and you may have to do it in secret a while to prove it out. Um, this, is, this has been this, this is a proven way to do it. So I would just recommend the big brands that, that you make this a priority. And, and there are some inspirations out there of big companies that are doing that. Patagonia is a great example of a large company that has made the lives of the makers and the, and the quality of life for everyone a priority. That's, that's what they're all about. And using recycled materials, and best labor practices, so it can be done. It's really a matter of what are your values as a company. And we're building our company. Um, we are a fashion company, but really we're only using it as a vehicle to change lives. So our purpose is to work to end slavery and extreme poverty through fashion, you know, life-changing fashion jobs. If you ask a large fashion company, what is your purpose? Well, our purpose is to develop the highest quality, lowest priced product as fast as we can. That's their priority. So it's really turning your priority on its head and, and looking at it in a reverse way. And not, not many companies are willing to do that. 
that's incredibly powerful and, and such important points you make. And I think, you know, it's really about your company, your company's value, from, and it comes from the top down. And what you said about, you know, right. really work, working in closer collaboration with all of the stakeholders in that supply chain um, and really putting an emphasis on that um, and making sure that those, you know, that if you do work with third parties, um, in the supply chain, knowing who they are, doing those those due diligence actions that are necessary, and really making sure that those that who are working um, to produce the items for for uh, that will that will appear in in your stores or online um, are doing the right thing. So I really appreciate that. Um, I think one last thing before we go. If people want to learn more about human slavery, what resources uh, would you point them to? Yeah, so there's a really great resource that um, is the most comprehensive uh, reporting on, on human slavery and trafficking. It's called the Global Slavery Index. It's globalslaveryindex.org. So that's a really powerful resource. Our website, causegear.com, also has some, some interesting things to look at. Um, and I would just add that, you know, we talk about the, the consumer, the power of consumer, and the biggest consumer that, that I see is, is business. Business can actually put a lot of pressure on brands by thinking about the way they purchase, you know, for, from, a, from promotional products to um, event, event items and things like that, in addition to large retailers. Well, great. Thank you so much, uh, Brad, for joining us here today on, on, on our podcast to talk about labor trafficking and really illuminate this issue for us because it's it, a lot goes into producing the clothing we wear every day and understanding what that is and uh, is going to make it a, the world a better place for everyone. So thank you so much. And the resources that Brad just mentioned, if you want to access those, they will be on our podcast page. And I would specifically say, if you want to learn more about uh, the work that Brad does, go to causegear.com and click on the about page. Thank you all for joining us. A big thank you to ACFCS, and um, thank you all for joining us today.